Well, good morning, Asbury. It's good to see your faces. Uh, there's only a slight bit of that syllabus overwhelm that happens this first week in your eyes. Um, hopefully, it will get better as the weeks go on. I know that um, many of us like to give gifts to the people that we love, and I wonder if you've ever given a gift that just didn't go over the way you thought it would. You know, maybe there was something you really loved and you wanted someone else to love it, and so you wrapped it up and you handed it to them and waited for that expression of joy when they unwrapped it, and it just fell flat. Like maybe you're a coffee lover, right? And so maybe you went out and bought the coffee you really love, some kind of free trade, whole bean, dark roast, Colombian mountain, you know, something a burrow carried down from a mountain and you bought it and you wrapped it up and you gave it to a friend and when you asked them later how they liked it, they said, it was almost as good as Folgers, you know? <laughs> oh. Sometimes the gifts that we give to people don't quite go over the way that we wanted them to. Well, I, I want us to watch just a brief video. Uh, this was something shown on a German TV show about a woman who gave her dad a gift and it didn't quite go the way she went. And if you speak German, which some of you actually do, you will understand it. But if not, we'll read the subtitles as it goes. So let's watch this video together. Sag mal, Papa, habe ich dich noch gar nicht gefragt. Wie kommst du eigentlich mit dem neuen iPad zurecht, was wir dir zum Geburtstag geschenkt haben? Gut. Mit den ganzen Apps kommst du klar? Was denn für Apps? Geh mal bitte ein Stück zur Seite. make you cringe? I mean, at our house, we spend all our time making sure things like that don't happen to electronics. And here's this man who doesn't really know what the gift is for. And so I, I guess an iPad would make an okay cutting board, but that's not really what it was made for. It was made for so much more. Sometimes something is created with great value, great potential, great mission, and yet It's used for things that are beneath its purpose. One of my favorite preachers named John Ortberg talks about something called a shadow mission. And he says that each one of us has one. Each person here on earth was designed with a mission from God, something God designed us for and gifted us and called us to do. But if we don't pursue that mission out of, I don't know, fear, intimidation, laziness, we will be tempted to drift on autopilot into a shadow mission. Thomas Merton would have called it the false self, something that is not what God created us for, an unworthy purpose. And when we do, we become like an iPad being used as a cutting board, stuck in the dishwasher, ruined by a lack of understanding of our worth, and attempting to be something other than what God has called us to be. And the amazing thing about shadow missions is you don't have to try really hard to find one. Uh, you can kind of just fall into it. It's very natural, very easy to come by. Your shadow mission uh, might be something like this, to make sure people like me, to impress and entertain, to stay busy and look important, 
to make sure everything is perfect, including me and every other person I can control, to avoid pain or change, to prove to my dad that I can do it, to coast through each thing I try without much effort, maybe even to stay so busy I don't have to think about my feelings. Anybody feel a little twinge when they heard one of those? Maybe not. Maybe there's something else that came to mind. And and the thing is, most of these aren't overtly bad. Uh, They just aren't worthy of a life created by God. They aren't the mission we were made for. They're they're the iPad in the dishwasher. Uh, When I was 10 years old, I went away one summer to summer camp, uh, Christian summer camp, in the hills of central Texas. And we did a lot of amazing things at camp that year. We went horseback riding. We went rock climbing. We did archery. I don't know why they handed 10-year-olds bows and arrows, but they did. Uh, We went canoeing. We went swimming every day. But that wasn't my favorite part of camp. My favorite part of summer camp happened twice a day. Every morning and every evening before we went to bed, we went to chapel together. And I know what you're thinking. She was a chapel nerd from the very beginning. (laughs) And you're probably right about that. But y'all, I had never been to worship like this before, where people sang their hearts out to God the way that you just did. I'd never heard people get up and give testimony of the change and transformation that God was working in their lives. And I had never heard the Bible talked about quite like it was there. These incredible stories from Scripture that came alive that summer for me. I'm pretty sure that summer when I was 10, shaped me to love worship for the rest of my life. And that week, the woman who was the Bible teacher was telling the story from the book of Esther, and she took the whole week to tell it. Each day, she unfolded a little more of the story of the brave and beautiful main character of the book, Esther. Each day, the plot thickened, and evil threatened, and danger loomed, and at the end of every chapel that week, the story ended on a cliffhanger making us wonder just how Esther would get herself and her people out of imminent danger. And the suspense got so thick, I'm not kidding, they made us leave our Bibles in the chapel overnight. And they locked it up, knowing we might sneak in there and try to take them. They knew we would try to read ahead in the story, and they didn't want us to get ahead. And I will tell you that I've never wanted to read my Bible more than it was locked away and someone told me that it was forbidden and off-limits. So Esther's story starts out with her as a forlorn orphan, having lost her parents and being raised by her relative Mordecai. She's alone and helpless, and she even belongs to this helpless people, the Jews, who are in exile in Persia, a vulnerable and displaced people. But Esther, Esther has a gift. I mean, almost a superpower. Esther is beautiful. And this gets her noticed by the king, who has just kicked out his most recent queen for not being willing to come and put herself on display as his possession. So Esther, this little orphan Jewish girl, ends up living in a palace in the highest position in the land for a woman, sitting high and pretty and rich and privileged. And you can tell why we as kids love this story. This is the Harry Potter story of the Bible, right? A little orphan 
Raises from rags to riches, an ordinary kid suddenly plucked out and transported to a palace where they find out that they're actually really special after all. Only this story is true. And Esther's happily ever after doesn't end when she gets that door with, to the uh, dressing room with the name Queen stamped on it. It turns out that she is surrounded by people who are living shadow missions. And it puts her very life and her people in peril. Her husband, King Xerxes, he should have been living a mission that any leader could be proud of. He, he could have seen it as his mission to be a good king, to govern wisely, to serve the poor, to protect the vulnerable, to create a flourishing society. But instead, he chose a shadow mission, to party all the time, to look impressive and experience pleasure while following the path of least resistance. And because of that, he was the kind of leader who surrounded himself with people who would tell him exactly what he wanted to hear. Leaders who are following a shadow mission don't like to be surrounded with people who tell them the truth. And so they surround themselves with people who give them the answers that they want. And his worst advisor was the one he listened to the most. Haman is his chief advisor. He's a man living out a shadow mission so awful that it causes genocide or close to it. He is living a shadow mission of self-idolatry. He literally demands for everyone around him to bow down to him, and he won't let anyone stand in his way. And when Esther's relative Mordecai won't bow, remembering the first commandment not to have any other gods before the one true God of Israel, Haman paints a target not just on his back, but on the back of his whole people. He coerces permission from their frat boy of a king and sets a date in law that there will be genocide and this people will be taken down. So the date is set. All the Jews in the kingdom are set to be slaughtered and no one knows that their beloved beauty queen of a queen is herself a Jew. So here's Esther. She didn't know this was going to happen. She did not sign up for this. She can no longer follow the mission she's been following, looking beautiful, being nice, keeping her mouth shut while she sits in a palace in her privilege. And it's Mordecai who knows her well enough to speak truth to her who tells it to her straight. Here's what Mordecai tells her from Esther chapter 4. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. That last sentence, that last phrase, that is the flip from a shadow mission to a mission. Who knows? What if you were in this place, in this time, to do what you were created to do and you didn't even know it? Every one of us needs a Mordecai. We need to be in community with people who tell us the truth, even when it's a hard truth to hear. If we're living out our shadow mission, we need someone who will call us out to the mission that we were created for. Mordecai tells it like it is. You have not been brought to this point in your own life for your comfort, your prosperity, or your pleasure. Gifts are never just for you to enjoy. You 
are blessed to be a blessing. So Esther's real mission, it turns out, is revealed only in crisis. And this is true of us sometimes. Sometimes it takes a crisis to reveal what we're called to do. Her real mission is to save her people by courageously advocating for them, even if it means risking her crown and her life by leaning on God's help and God's power. At this point, Esther has to figure out how to live into her true mission when all she's ever known was her shadow mission. There's a story that's told. I don't, I don't know if this is true or not, but that never stops preachers from telling stories. So there's a story that's told that at the Mattel toy factory once, um, the little boxes that they put in toys that gave them a voice got mixed up. And the voice boxes that were meant for talking Barbie went into talking G.I. Joe. And the voice boxes that were meant for talking G.I. Joe went into talking Barbie. And so some of them actually got sold and got out of the factory, and some kids pulled a string on a toy and heard G.I. Joe say to them, let's do our nails and braid each other's hair. And then some other kids <laughs> had bought a Barbie, and they pulled a string and heard her say, hit the deck, men, it's time for battle. So King Xerxes thought he was getting a Barbie and he ended up with a G.I. Joe. And it was time for battle right inside their palace. And here's the thing, here's the thing about shadow missions. Um, they're usually kind of based on our own natural gifts, our own inclinations, something we do really well without having to try too hard. For Esther, it was being beautiful. But once we start living into the mission that God has for us and calls us to, our natural gifts won't be enough anymore. We won't have what it takes to do what God calls us to do without God's help. We need God's grace and power to do what God calls us to do. And Esther knew that. She knew that if she went in her own strength and gifts, she would die. She knew it was not enough to be pretty anymore. That would not change the king's mind. Her predecessor, the queen before her, had stood up to this, this king, and she was no longer queen. So Esther would have to break the rules. She would have to go into the throne room without being summoned, which was against the law and a capital offense and could get her killed. So Esther needed all the help she could summon. She needed God's help and the help of others. And here's the message she sent back to Mordecai from Esther chapter 4. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I will do the right thing, even if it costs me my life. What does Esther do when her gifts, the ones that were fine for her shadow mission, are no longer enough when she faces her scary and much bigger real mission, her God-given mission. What does Esther do? She turns to fasting and prayer and community. She calls on the Lord in a deep earnestness because this 
is life and death. We're not playing anymore. And she calls the whole community throughout the land to fast and pray with her. Fasting, prayer, community. This is battle. Hit the deck. This is where the power happens. These are the means of grace. They are the means by which we lean into God's grace and power. This is how we enter into the mission that God has called us to. The first of these that we're emphasizing as a community in the grace-filled life year is community. Think about it. Esther calls on our community to fast and pray with her. She may be going into the throne room alone, but the entire people are going into battle with her. She knows she can't do this alone. She knows she can't get by on her own gifts. Those ones got her through her shadow mission, but they will not be enough for her God-given mission. Your true mission, the one that's unfolding, the one that you're discovering, will be something bigger than the gifts that you have. You will, be ne- you will need to be deeply immersed in the grace of God to even attempt to pursue the mission God has for you. You'll need to be surrounded by community that will pray with you and tell you the truth, even when you don't want to hear it. I can't even tell you what it did to me to hear this story as a 10-year-old girl. In a season of more struggle and pain in my own family than any 10-year-old should go through, to hear the story of a young girl with family problems who uses her blessings to become a hero and save her people. I knew that week that I wanted a mission from God. I knew that I hungered to make a difference. I knew God would call me to something really great and special. I just didn't know what that was yet. But I was 10, (laughs) and there were a lot of years that passed in there, and over those years of growing up, that feeling of being called to a mission, that excitement was replaced somewhere along the way by a shadow mission, one of seeking approval and acclaim and comfort in order to please people and make them proud of me. I decided that I was called to study and practice medicine. Some of it was because I was good at science, and I do, I actually enjoy surgery. So there, there, that's the one thing. But, um, I think there was a big shadow to that decision, too. I think it's because it, it won me the trifecta of people-pleasing. People praised you if you were smart. People praised you if you were helping others. And then other people praised you if you were going to make a lot of money. And so the trifecta ended up in a call to medicine for me. And people-pleasing became a kind of addiction for me until I finally reached a breaking point where all of those dreams, that shadow, went up in smoke. And about the same time, God called me to ministry. And I thought, this is great. I'm done with all of that. I thought I was free and clear of all the shadows of the past until the day I sat in the middle of the back row of Estes Chapel, and I realized that my shadow mission had followed me to seminary and that I could do ministry for the wrong reasons instead of the right ones. I was on track to pursue a calling from God, along with a degree from Asbury Seminary, while calling attention to my own gifts 
and eventually burning out in my own weaknesses. Your gifts are not going to be enough for ministry. The things that come naturally to you can lead you to hell just as easily as your weaknesses can. What does it look like to do ministry in your own gifts? It looks like Samson. Samson's gifts were so powerful, they were acknowledged before he was ever born. They were announced along with a series of behaviors that were supposed to set him apart and remind him to stay humble and dependent on God. But he broke every rule meant to give him some form of holiness or connection to God. He thought that in his own strength and his own gifts, he would survive without commitment or devotion to God. And instead of surrounding himself with someone who would speak truth for him, he ended up finding a woman who was pursuing her own shadow mission and just used him as a pawn in it. Samson shows us that gifts in ministry will never make up for lack of character. Without character, without transformation into the image of God, your gifts can crush you. Esther had a Mordecai who told her the hard truth, and she snapped out of that shadow mission. Samson had a Delilah who stoked his shadow mission, told him what he wanted to hear, and it sapped him of strength and purpose and took away the promise of a future. You may be extraordinarily gifted, and it will take you far in your shadow mission, but gifts aren't what true mission is about. You need community around you that loves you and tells you the truth and calls you into the means of grace together where you can listen for God's voice and not just the voice of your own ego. It's not just people who have shadow missions. Churches, churches have shadow missions too. Anybody think of a church they've ever attended that was pursuing a shadow mission? I sometimes wish they would just put it right on the sign so we would know when we drive by. Like, first church, an impressive church for impressive people. Keeping the neighborhood kids out so they won't mess up our carpet. Growing bigger all the time, but we're not sure what for. Doing things the way we've always done them for over a hundred years. I mean, the great tragedy there is the church should be a place where we are silent and filled and in community enough to find out what our shadow mission is, not a place that stirs up its own shadow mission and ours. Leonard Ravenhill said, the greatest tragedy is a sick church in a dying world. And worshiping in community, gathering as God's people to pursue God together, is supposed to be the antidote to our shadow missions, the things that darken our hearts. Worship is supposed to take our attention off of ourselves and place it on God, to clear our shadows and help reform the image of Christ in us. This, friends, is what the means of grace are meant to do. But the truth is that every means of grace has a shadow mission. Um, I think we have a slide of the different means of grace that we're going to focus on this year, month by month, as we work through the entire year, this Grace-Filled Life series together. There will be others that come in around the edges, but each month we'll be sharing with you some practices and some ways that you can lean into these. But I'll bet we could go through these one by one, and we could think of a shadow reason for practicing them, or maybe two or ten. 
Whether it was attention or self-congratulation or to help ourselves feel superior to others, sometimes even to help ourselves feel inferior to others, or maybe just checking a box like we got extra credit from God for doing one or more of them. I once had a, a man at a church where I pastored call me up on the phone and insist that we add a time of silent prayer into the worship services. I listened to him, I respected what he was asking, but it wasn't something this particular worship service was going to do at that time. And so when I was firm in my decision and I told him uh, we weren't going to practice silent prayer in that particular service that week, he began screaming at me over the phone, raging at me. I was holding the phone this far away. It was vibrating in my hand, and I could still hear him yell, we have to practice silent prayer. Don't you realize how important this is? Silent prayer has become the most important part of my devotional life. And I wanted to ask him in the words of Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? <laughs> Paul told the Corinthians, you can speak with tongues of men and angels, but if you don't have love, you are just a gong. You are just a clanging symbol. Without love, what you do for God is just noise. Worship can be a clanging cymbal. The study of scripture can be an empty gong. Fasting can be a diet. Service, an attention-seeking act. Silent prayer with rage in your heart is just noise. So we need to check in with each other and community, check in with God and ourselves. When we immerse ourselves in these practices, we have to ask ourselves, are we over time growing in love with God and neighbor? That's a great checkup point to make. If not, we may have just nailed one of our shadow missions and called it the means of grace. Jesus talks almost as much about shadow missions as he talks about the healthy and life-giving ways of pursuing God. Beware of practicing your piety before others, Jesus says. When you pray, go hide in your closet. When you give, don't even tell your other hand what you're doing. He went round and round with the religious leaders of the day about the shadows they had placed around Sabbath and fasting and circumcision. Why, why does Jesus talk so much about shadow missions? It's because he knew he knew if Satan can't take us totally off the mission, he'll just throw us off by a few degrees. He'll just twist something good into something that will draw our eyes off of God and onto ourselves and leave us pointing the wrong way altogether. Jesus had a lot to say about shadow missions because he knew they could destroy us. He had a lot to say because Jesus had a shadow mission. To rise to power without suffering. Immediately after his baptism, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. And during that time of fasting and testing in the wilderness in preparation before he began three years of ministry, you can overhear Satan whispering to him, shadow mission. No need to be hungry. No need to be in pain. No need to suffer. Just do things my way and I'll give you everything you want instantaneously. You can have it now. And the biggest Battles for the decisions that shaped Jesus' ministry were fought in those 40 days of preparation before his three years of ministry ever began. In fasting, in solitude, in prayer, 
Through the means of grace, Jesus fought these battles between his mission and his shadow mission before ministry ever started. You can see Peter dangle it in front of him again when Jesus is talking about his mission to suffer and die. Lord, no, you don't need to suffer and die. That's why Jesus is so sharp with him. He's responding again to the shadow mission. Get behind me, Satan. I've heard you before. The temptation to go to power without suffering comes up again in the Garden of Gethsemane right before the day of the cross. And Jesus, in that night in the garden, in the means of grace of prayer and community, remember he called his friends to pray with him, Jesus weighed the mission and the shadow mission one more time. Let this cup pass for me, not my will, but yours be done. And by the time he got to the cross, it was already settled. The battle of the cross was fought the night before in the prayer of Gethsemane. On the cross, he didn't have to decide what to do. He had fought it out the night before in a time of preparation, on his knees, leaning into the Father's heart through the means of grace. Listen, we would would really all like a pain-free way of pursuing the life God has for us. I mean, I would sign up for that, to drift into some easy track that'll take us straight to what we want. But if Jesus couldn't achieve his mission without suffering... What makes you think that you can? If Jesus needed time apart in fasting and prayer, solitude and community to prepare before ministry, why wouldn't you? If Jesus needs the means of grace to keep him from the shadow, what makes you think that you don't? And if Jesus called his friends around him as he wrestled and prayed, I'm pretty sure that we need to also. Jesus' mission was settled in the wilderness and the garden before the defining moments of his ministry. So friends, welcome to your wilderness. This time of preparation for ministry here in seminary will help decide who you will be for a lifetime. Choose well. Let's pray. God, We need you more than we can say, more than we sing, more than we pray, more than we can even admit to ourselves. Lord, some of us have been called here by shadow missions, and they're turning to smoke, and we need to hear again the call of your voice, showing us your purpose for us. Lord, we need to hear your voice loving us as children before we ever become your servants. Lord, don't let us manipulate any of these means for your grace, these channels to your heart, for anything other than your glory and our transformation. And Lord, Holy Spirit, will you come into this room, speak to each heart? Will we give you the permission to flow through again and wash out all the things that we thought were so important so you can bring us again our attention to the thing that is the most important and help us to build our lives on that, God. Help us to build our lives on you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.